Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace for, with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, to, the, to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and infallible word may bless it to our hearts, minds, and understandings. Let us take a moment to pray. Lord, we pray and ask for your favor, for your blessing, um, and that you would attend to the reading and the consideration of your word through preaching, that you would work uh, gospel peace in the hearts of those that hear, that you would add to their hearing faith, that they might behold and embrace and love you, the only true and triune God, and your, your son as the Savior whom you have provided to uh, atone for our sins and uh, uh, provide the righteousness needed to live in communion with you. Bless me as I preach now to be faithful to the text and um, to give care to the things that you have brought to me to teach today. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 35, 3 and 4 reads, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. As Christians, this is our hope, to be saved. Saved from the fallenness of this world as it exists now. Saved from the wrath of God against our own sins. Saved from all that assails our hearts and our minds because of sin. Our own sin and the sin that exists in the world and the, the tone and the, the nature of this world. And in this passage here, we need to, of course, consider the context. And so setting the table for this passage, remembering the context of the entire letter of Hebrews and the passage that immediately precedes this text will help us to understand what we are being taught, what is being brought to mind, and how it can encourage us in our faith. The theme of the letter of Hebrews is Jesus is better. I've said it before. I will continue to say it anytime I come to you in consideration of this book because it's so easy for us to forget. And so time and time again throughout this book, we're told, consider him, look to him, think of him because it's so tempting to get caught up in everything else that's going on around us. He's better than any substitute. He's better than any addition. He's better than anything you could think of to supplement him. Anything you can imagine. He's even better than the good things God himself has previously provided because they were only ever meant to make Jesus easier to recognize when he showed up. The temple, sacrifices, the priests, the Old Testament law, all of these things. And the section of this chapter uh, of Hebrews here prior to the text we're considering today is the beginning of the end of this letter. It's the final section 
these two chapters, and they give the reader direction on how to live in light of faith in the supremacy and soul sufficiency of Jesus. The direction given is wrapped in a metaphor which compares the life of a Christian to a competitor in a foot race. And the race is not a sprint, but it's a long distance endeavor. So in the sermon prior and in the text prior to this, what was addressed was how we're to think about the pain that comes from the physical effort required in running this race. We're not to think of the pain as punishment from God or as a sign of his neglect, but as signs of his fatherly love, whereby he disciplines us so that we can endure to the end. This principle is meant to help us curb discouragement and fatigue. So here we fall uh, uh, into another, or we see another therefore. And we know that therefore means because of that, now this. So what is the that? The that is the truth that Jesus is the very last and the very best of what God has communicated to us. According to the first verse of the first chapter, many times, many ways. We who have come to faith in Jesus have to mature beyond basic belief by looking to and considering Jesus as our beacon, our example, our helper, our high priest king, our advocate, and our intercessor. That's the that. Based on this, collect this collective indicative, the imperative command that follows is the now this. The last sermon taught that the hardships of this life are signs of our loving Father training and maturing us. The troubles of this life are not the result of bad luck, nor are they signs of God's absence or indifference. Rather, they're to remind us that we are his children, and he remains in control despite the temporary pains of disciplines, reproofs, and chastisement. We're learning obedience through our sufferings, just like Jesus. The Bible says he learned obedience by the things he suffered. The things Jesus suffered caused him to pray with loud cries and tears. So it's obvious that training causes distress. So when we're greatly distressed, we can be encouraged to persist in fighting the good fight of faith. That term comes from 1 Timothy 6.12. And we fight this and we endure and we persist and we can be encouraged because we understand that according to 1 Corinthians 10 and 13, all of the hardships of this life are quite common and in line with the ordinary experience of a Christian. In the section of scripture where we find that phrase, fight the good fight, it's prefaced by a warning against seeking godliness as a means to an end. Godliness is the end. The final verse of the prior passage in Hebrews 12 says that the discomfort we experience results in or ends with the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And two verses later, here we're going to be commanded to strive for godliness as a prerequisite to ultimate communion with God. 
So here in this first section, we see the phrase, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. So we're being addressed in light of the temptations to the weariness and faint heartedness spoken of in verse three. A weary runner's hands droop. A faint hearted runner's knees get weak. We have to fight through bad form that slows us down. A good coach recognizes bad habits that develop when his players get tired and discouraged. He has to point them out and he has to remind his players to focus on their fundamentals so they're able to continue to perform at a championship level. So in practice, he purposely harps on their technique when they're tired. So they develop good habits that become second nature and subconscious. We have some men in the congregation who coached before. At towards the end of practice, what do you see the players do? That bad form starts to come in, right? If it's baseball, they're throwing, they start throwing down here. You know, you're running, you start drooping, hanging down, and you got to, hey, hey, knees up. Nope, start, you did it wrong, start over. So in this first verse of today's sermon text, we're admonished to remember to practice proper procedure. Lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. And we're also reminded to bind up our wounds and reinforce our weak joints. It's normal to be sore as the result of tough competition. Just like athletes, they get massages, they sit in cold tubs, they ice their knees, they rub topical creams and menthol agents on their bodies. And we have to undergo healing and maintenance treatments to endure in our Christian race. How do we do this? Through regular scripture reading, communing with God in prayer, attending worship, hearing the gospel, fellowship, partaking of the sacrament. That's the cold tubs of a Christian. That's that menthol rub. That's the ice bath, right? Through these means, we keep our focus on Jesus, who has repeatedly been demonstrated to be better than any alternative. Verse 13 says, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So when we're undergoing the discomfort of God's fatherly discipline, we must be careful not to add to our own suffering. If a person has injuries, they're very careful about how they walk and where they walk. They pay attention so they don't trip or bang those injured body parts against something that causes them even further pain. This is why we're told earlier in the chapter to lay aside the burdensome weights and the sin which so easily entangles us. And in the original language there, the idea is of shrubbery that's planted in a circle. But we're running a race. So how can we run with endurance if we got a bunch of stuff tripping us up and circling around our feet in the way? We have to make a clear path to run on. And that's why it says make straight paths for your feet. Verse 14 in the beginning says strive for peace with everyone. Another hindrance to endurance running will be to try to, to, to uh, uh, enter into a boxing match at the same time you're trying to run a race with the other racers or with the people that are watching the race. The point of verse 13 is clear your path so you can run. So now here in verse 14, how silly would it be having cleared your path to start fighting with people? 
Recall the earlier portion of this chapter says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And now think of that in light of 1 Peter 2, 19 to 23. It reads this, this way. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Those two words fall right in line with what we're, we're seeing here. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So we're told here, strive for peace with everyone. Think of Romans 12, which tells us, bless those who persecute you. Live in harmony with one another. Repay no one evil for evil. Live peaceably with all people. Don't avenge yourself. Overcome evil with good. You can't expect to run a good race if you're fighting and bickering with, the, with people at the same time. You got to focus on your form, your stride, your pace, the ground in front of you, the finish line. Now, some people are just disagreeable. And they don't find a way to be at odds with you no matter what you do. But in that Romans passage, it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So make it your business to be one of those. Jesus, the prince of peace, came to strive for peace between God and fallen mankind. Verse 2 of Hebrews 12 reminds us that Jesus endured hostility from sinners against himself. And in that famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us how we're to respond to people who oppose us. Matthew 5, 43 to 47. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do this? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This final verse here in the passage from Matthew leads us to the next section of our sermon text. After being told to strive for peace with everyone, it says, and, that means and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. An earlier verse says that we're being trained to obtain the peaceable fruit of righteousness. That's verse 11. So now we have to strive for that goal. Leviticus is the Old Testament parable parallel to Hebrew. It's the key to understanding Hebrew. Leviticus contains the shadow elements that come to light and find their fulfillment in Jesus. Because as all of Hebrews teaches, Jesus is better. So in Leviticus 11, 45, we see another therefore statement. God says, he is the God who delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And therefore, or 
because of that, now this, be holy as I am holy. The command to be holy occurs at least three other times in Leviticus. Chapter 19, verse 2, chapter 20, verse 7, and chapter 20, verse 26. Here in Hebrews, we're taught that we can't have true communion with God apart from holiness. In the last verse of the passage of Matthew, we heard Jesus teach a parallel lesson to the one we see here, where he said, be at peace with folks, pray for your enemies, and be perfect, as God in heaven is perfect. The second part of verse 15 says, or I'm sorry, the first part of verse 15 says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. This is a repetitive theme in the book of Hebrews, these warnings. Not to drift. Not to, to, to fail to consider Jesus. We see these similar warnings throughout this letter. The writer is not contradicting the long-held Protestant confession of the perseverance of the saints. Rather, it's a proper warning that true saints of God will respect and be aware of. Those who have been born again by the Spirit of God hear these warnings and govern themselves accordingly. Failing to obtain in the original language has the indication of the actions of someone who's fallen behind, whose actions are lacking or falling short. And again, in keeping with the endurance race theme, runners have to keep a certain pace or you're going to fall behind. You can't give a substandard effort or you're going to drop back from the lead. The second half of that verse 15 here in our passage says that we are to see to it. After seeing to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, we're to see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. This phrase, root of bitterness, is not talking about the specific sin of bitterness per se. Rather, it's talking about any seemingly small affair that festers and grows and causes trouble if left unaddressed. Think back to the beginning of the chapter when it spoke of the weights and the closely clinging sins. Roots start underground. And by the time you see them sprout, they've already spread deep and wide under the surface. If you only remove the part you can see, that root's going to continue to grow and spread and produce more and more troublesome plants that choke out the life of fruits and flowers. And until that root is removed, it will continue to entrench itself and make itself even harder to remove. This is the bitter root spoken of here that leads to defiling. It's a callback to Deuteronomy 29, 18, which says, Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. The next see to it in verse 16 is to see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Sexual immorality falls under the category of lust of the flesh. This is any physical desire for something God created, which is good and to be enjoyed that we crave beyond the measure that God has appointed. Or for a different reason than God has intended. This can include sex, but it's not limited to it. 
Other examples are sleep and rest, food and drink, laughter, pleasure. All of those things are good, but can be misused and abused. And a runner in an endurance race must be disciplined. Lust is a lack of discipline, which is the opposite of the fruit of the spirit known as self-control. Esau had no regard for his position as a son, the firstborn son of Isaac and Rebekah. That position of being firstborn held certain benefits and responsibilities. But there came a time when he was so focused on his immediate physical desires. The passage reads, a single meal. And he took his eye off the long-term goal. This passage is again calling us to remember that we are in an endurance race. There are temptations along the way to focus on immediate physical gratification that come at the forfeiture of future eternal spiritual reward. Verse 17 of our text says, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So later, when the temporary physical urges were no longer Esau's immediate concern, he realized what he gave up. And he was so distraught that he plotted to kill his brother. Live at peace with all men? This is that bitter root spoken of. Elah, Esau failed in his strive to be at peace with his brother. So this repentance that's written of here. It's not the true penitence of someone who realizes what they've done, but only the regret of someone who realizes what they've lost. The holiness we're told to strive for in the earlier verse of our passage is the holiness of an inwardly changed heart, not just the desire of a temporarily empty belly. Esau's sorrow led him to murderous thoughts, not true repentance. What he sought was the blessing not the sonship. When experiencing exhaustion and hunger, he treated his status as firstborn as useless. He told his brother, I'm about to die. Of what use is this birthright to me? You about to die, bruh? You hungry. Calm down. But that's how we get. The lust of the flesh. He's so focused on those things. What good is ah, that to me? A single meal gave away his birthright. The firstborn son inherited everything that the father, all of his treasures, all of his, his positions, all of, everything. Well, I'm hungry. Care about that. As children of God, we must regard our eternal and spiritual position and status worthy of more consideration than the temporary satisfactions of satiating our physical desires. So in conclusion, we're in a long race. It will last us, I mean, it will exhaust us and tempt us to be discouraged because it's not easy. We have to look to Jesus and faithfully attend to the means of grace God has afforded us. These means are to strengthen and encourage us and to mend our wounds as we run the race. We must live at peace with others to avoid adding to the strains of the race. We must be on guard against those bitter roots that will choke the life out of any fruit we will produce to God's glory. 
Don't let your immediate and temporal physical urges take precedence over what is spiritual and eternal. Regard your status as a child of God as more worthy. So you reap the royal rewards obtained for us by the perfect obedience and substitutionary atonement of our Savior, God, and King, Jesus Christ. Only he has done all of these things perfectly. And only through faith in him are we accepted and made children of God, our Father. In following his example, we don't become the children of God. We prove that we are the children of God to the praise of his glorious grace. All glory to the true God, the only God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for this encouragement. Thank you for this warning. Help us, Lord, to make straight paths for our feet. Help us to live at peace with all men. Help us to strive for holiness. Help us to desire to see you and help us not to be tripped up. And caught up looking at temporary things, temporary physical pleasures. Help us to consider eternal spiritual pleasures. Thank you for your son who is not only our example, but he is our substitute. The holiness that is required for us to become children of God, only he can provide. The holiness that you call us to is the proving of our sonship of our childhood, of our relationship and our love and our regard for you. Help us by the strengthening of your Holy Spirit to faithfully apply the means of grace that you have granted to us to achieve these ends. Bless us as we go forth from this day to sanctify this day in our hearts to consider these truths and all of the truths of the gospel wherein we are saved from your wrath and made your children. In Jesus' name, amen.